Well, hello and welcome. This is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode 12 of the current series titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. In this episode, I'll be talking about the different types of spiritual beings that the Bible has made us aware of. But I'm already excited about the next episode when the topic will be Jesus' first coming and what was playing out in the spirit realm when he walked the earth. I was struck this week as I was working on the videos that will accompany this series about how significant all of this is. Throughout my adult Christian life, which has lasted several decades now, I've listened to the teachers and preachers downplay what the Bible has to say about the spirit realm. Most of the time saying that the topic only takes away from the core gospel message. They worry that the fascination with angels will distract us from Jesus and what he accomplished. Well, allow me to be frank. That is absolute nonsense. I say this in the video, but let me say it here. I hope that you're picking up on the significance of this topic. For example, one will struggle to fully understand Scripture if we refuse to acknowledge there are things going on in creation that we can't observe in our world and that we have to trust Scripture to tell us about. I may understand the significance of what Jesus accomplished in the New Testament without knowing about the history of the spirit realm, but in knowing about it, I understand the gospel better. I may understand much about Bible prophecy, but with understanding what's still to come in the spirit realm, I can understand it better. The same goes for the mystery that Paul wrote of. I can have a basic understanding that the mystery is that Jesus made it possible for the Gentiles to be saved. But if I know the history and the future of the spirit realm, I'll understand the significance of the mystery better. And I may have somewhat of a grasp on the New Testament books like Ephesians, but understanding the spirit realm a little bit allows me to understand Ephesians and other books like it and the Gospels better. Next, people often wonder why it is that the Jews and Israel are the target of so much hate in the world. Well, when you understand that all the nations other than Israel are under the authority and influence of Satan, who hates Israel because it belongs to Yahweh, the answer to that question becomes obvious. Likewise, as people continually become dismayed by the world we're living in, is it really any wonder it's such an evil, messed up place when we understand that the principalities and powers in heavenly places who are given authority over it are in rebellion against God and they're in lockstep with Satan? Finally, If all of this is true about the spirit realm, and we really believe what the scripture says about the existence of spiritual evil beings and their influence they have in our world, isn't it important to know what our biblical response should be living in this dark world while we await the Messiah's return? The knowledge God has made available to us regarding what is and has been going on in the spirit realm is a source of great wisdom and understanding in this life. Like I've always said about Bible prophecy, understanding the circumstances surrounding the return of Jesus 
should be a fundamental part of our Christian education. I believe the same to be true about understanding the spirit realm according to the information contained in the Bible. So, let's get on with understanding just a little bit more. Although most may have a completely biblically inaccurate idea of it, about 8 out of 10 mainline Christians believe in heaven. And although most American Christians do not believe that Satan is real, around 2 out of 3 of them believe that people can be influenced by spiritual forces such as demons or evil spirits. The thing is, nobody gets a vote on what's real and what's not real. What the follower of Jesus believes should line up with what Jesus believes. What Jesus believes is reflected in the Bible, not Hollywood, and not in the minds of modern-day philosophers. Some Christians say that the only being to exist outside of our physical reality is God, and He is transcendent and unknowable. The realm He exists in cannot ever be understood or described in human terms. In this paradigm, Satan, rather than being an individual, may be more of an idea representing evil, and anything such as Satan or angels or demons only temporarily exist in the physical realm for only as long as God wills them to, as they fulfill His purposes. When, according to this school of thought, such beings have fulfilled their mission or purpose, they simply go back out of existence until they're needed again on stage, so to speak. Along with this idea is often the additional idea that heaven and hell do not exist either. Others, in fact, likely most evangelical Christians, reduce beings in the spiritual realm down to God, Satan, angels, and demons. Although this may be closer to what the Bible describes, a closer look at Scripture reveals that there are different types, ranks, and functions of supernatural beings. What leads professional and amateur theologians alike to these varying conclusions is how they fundamentally approach Scripture. Hermeneutics are the rules that we interpret Scripture with. There are countless sets of hermeneutics. Whether you know it or not, you interpret, you interpret Scripture according to a set of hermeneutics. You just likely haven't formally articulated your list of informal rules you go by. Well, rather than review the many different approaches of others, I'm going to summarize part of my own method as it relates to interpreting prophetic and supernatural related scripture so that you can at least know where I'm coming from. I utilize what may be termed as face value hermeneutics. Face value hermeneutics use a literal approach to understanding scripture but understands that humans from all cultures, from all times, regularly use symbolism, metaphors, and hyperbole, etc. After a passage has been initially translated, I first attempt to read it as though it is literal, taking into account historical and cultural background information. I also consider the worldview of the individual human authors and what their history and experience was then if something doesn't make plain, literal sense, it's an indication that the author was using symbolism, metaphor, or hyperbole, or, you know, etc. Or, it could mean 
that the translation's bad. So first I take a closer look at the individual keywords to see other ways they could have been translated according to their historical uses in the ancient world. Now, what I mean by something not making sense doesn't mean that it has to line up with my own personal human experience in order for me to believe something is real or really occurred. When the Bible speaks of miracles or the supernatural, I understand I need to suspend my understanding of science and what we humans can observe and allow God to reveal truth to me about what we cannot observe. Well, rather than assume that a passage or an entire book of the Bible, such as Revelation, should be taken as though nothing is literal, because many things are not, in each instance symbolism is suspected, it's got to be evaluated individually. Taking something literally is always the default. The need to take something symbolically must be proven. Symbolism in the Bible is normally defined within the immediate context. When it's not, I suspect it would have been understood by the original intended readers because it was something they would have commonly known. In those cases, what they would have known is likely found in the Old Testament. In the end, every scripture must make sense in the chapter it's found in. The New Testament is not made up of a bunch of disjointed standalone statements. Every chapter needs to make sense according to the book that it's found in. And every book has got to fit in and be in agreement with the entire story we find in the Bible. When it comes to God revealing things about the supernatural realm in the Bible that cannot normally be observed by humans, I've got to trust God that he's not attempting to mislead or overwhelm, scare, or just entertain or simply comfort us while he ignores providing us with a picture of reality. Nor do I believe that he's leaving such passages in the Bible to each individual to spiritualize what's written and determine what it means based on their own private interpretation. Just because symbolism is utilized from time to time within visions of the supernatural realm, there's no reason to believe that everything in the vision is a symbol and doesn't represent something in reality. There's no biblical reason to believe that God is dumbing down the things that exist in the supernatural realm and is only providing us mere mortals with something our finite minds can relate to. What he has revealed in visions is only giving us a glimpse into a different realm of what he created. It's not the incomprehensible realm of our transcendent God, which exists outside of created reality. It's merely another created realm, the spirit realm, where he has chosen to regularly be present and interact with his creation. For example, Angels in the heavens are described in several passages of Scripture as having human-like features. And we see things like thrones and trees and altars. These similarities to humans and things that exist in the physical realm are only an indication of a common design and designer. And it should not be an indication that such things should be taken symbolically 
simply because our human logic leads us to believe that things should be drastically different in the spiritual realm. There, in fact, is biblical reason to believe that things on earth may purposefully resemble things that exist in heaven. Just as the first covenant requiring the blood sacrifice of animals was an imperfect foreshadowing of the second covenant, which was fulfilled in the shedding of Jesus' blood, so were many things earthly copies of heavenly things. The writer of Hebrews tells us, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's from Hebrews 9.24. God is not a deceiver. I trust that he's giving us an accurate idea of how things would look if we had the eyes to see into the supernatural realm. I trust that when he gave the biblical authors visions that illustrate events of the end of the age which occur in heaven for the purpose of giving us hope, that it's not a false hope that he's given us. It's not that we can't know anything about the spirit realm. It's as the Apostle Paul said, that we only know in part. I believe we can trust the part that God has revealed to us in the Bible. This is my default as we look at the descriptions of spiritual beings and their dwelling place described in the Bible. They're simply descriptions of what the prophets who wrote the passages saw in their visions. Because what God showed the prophets and the apostles is how he wants us to think of the supernatural or the spirit realm. The heavenly host is made up of diverse beings. What I mean by this is that there is no biblical reason to believe that all the unseen powers of darkness have entirely the same agenda and are on the same page. There's no reason to believe that their personalities and capabilities are homogenous, just as this is not true among mortal human beings. If they rebelled against God, why would they all be in harmonious agreement with each other? Just as we judge different humans to act more and less evil than others, the same's likely true of these beings. Likewise, among the angels who never rebelled against God, the angels who today remain in good standing, there are likely many different personalities and capabilities. God uses some as warriors, messengers, enforcers, protectors, and guards, some to punish and others to provide comfort. Whereas, some may say that when men have had visions of the spirit realm and recorded those visions which have ended up in the Bible, that they're limited to using experiences and language they're familiar with, and that may be true, what they have written is how God wants us humans to think of that realm. The heavenly realm, for example, never seems to just appear as a bright expanse with extra bright balls of light darting around. Most beings are comprehensible within human terms and our own experience. Angelic beings don't communicate with humans with something like the Vulcan mind meld that Mr. Spock used on Star Trek. I would expect that in the universe that God created, for many things to be held in common, even between realms. Remember, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
Yet, there's enough fantastic things that are mentioned in Scripture that are outside of our human experience that they're described and mixed in to give the visions credibility that, no, you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. It's not the earth, right? Well, the following, what's going to follow now in the rest of the podcast, is a list of some of the various spiritual beings that are mentioned in Scripture, both good and evil. It's important to know these different types of beings and their capabilities, because with the exception that the elect today, those that are saved by God for eternal life, the elect, they hold special status in Jesus, who all these beings are subject to, there's no reason to think that their capabilities are any different today than when they were documented in the Bible. We must know and understand our adversary to recognize his attacks. We need to know the good guys from the bad guys in this story that we're a part of. It's also not a bad idea <laughs> to become familiar with the beings that I'm going to briefly cover here, who you'll likely be meeting face to face one day. Some of these beings are going to be your co-workers for the rest of eternity. So let's start with Satan. The story of Satan spans the entire Bible. He's the enemy of humanity and especially the elect. He's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and we're finally rid of him in Revelation chapter 20. He plays a huge role throughout God's story. He's the antagonist of the gospel message. To say that we don't need to understand him, our enemy, is playing into the enemy's hands. The word Satan is used over 50 times beginning in 1 Chronicles and ending in Revelation. Satan literally means the accuser. This term is synonymous with the devil, which is only used in the New Testament. We see the term devil used another 34 times in the New Testament. The word devil not only means accuser, but it's translated as a slanderer or a false accuser. This is no surprise because in John chapter 8, 44, he's also called the father of lies. Well, the first term for him was the nakash in Genesis chapter 3. That's translated uh, for review as a serpent or a divine revealer or the metallically shiny one. I believe it's, uh, it's we're supposed to be led to believe it's all three. He's called the dragon in the book of Revelation. Satan's called the ruler or the prince of this world by Jesus three times in the book of John, and Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. From the beginning and throughout the New Testament, we know a primary function of Satan is that of deceiving. We also know him as a tempter. He tempted Jesus in the desert. He appears to tempt not always by putting thoughts into people's heads, however that might work, but by providing opportunity and using people's own evil desires. James 1, verses 13 to 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, 
brings forth death. Satan's attributed with having direct responsibility of causing some to sin. For example, possibly because of the actions of those who belong to him commit, Satan is vicariously called a murderer. He has the power of death. Cain, for example, according to the Apostle John, quote, was of the evil one and murdered his brother, unquote. Satan, of course, is that evil one. Certainly, Satan sought to have Jesus murdered and was successful at doing so. This is an example of how Satan accomplishes tangible evil deeds on this earth. He acts through those who belong to him. Possession, such as occurred with Judas Iscariot, is an extreme example. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, tells us the absolute defense against possession is to occupy our house or our bodies with Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Besides the example of Judas, we read that Peter says to Ananias, quote, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Unquote. Well, that's just another example of Satan directly influencing misbehavior in someone. Disturbing as this might sound, Satan is known as the father of those who are unsaved and is quite active today at combating the spreading of the true gospel. Even since the cross, as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that he can, quote, blind the minds of unbelievers and to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, unquote. Explaining the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us that the evil one is responsible for snatching away the seeds of the gospel which have been sown in people's hearts. It's in this role that according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, he's known as the, quote, prince of the power of the air, unquote, who is at work with the, quote, sons of disobedience, unquote. Well, Paul says these sons of disobedience are the rest of mankind who are dead in their trespasses and sin. Those whom the elect were once a part of, but no longer are, because of the work of Jesus. In Matthew 12, verses 24 to 27, we read that Satan is also known as Beelzebul, which translates as Lord of the Flies, or Lord of the Dung. This is a derogatory reference Jesus used to Satan being the ruler of demons. If Satan is symbolically represented by the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28, then there is good reason to believe that he was the highest ranking member of the heavenly host who ever rebelled against God. He was the anointed cherub who was in the Garden of Eden. He now has influence or authority over other fallen spiritual beings. In fact, Satan is said to have his own kingdom that he rules over. Jesus said, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? That's found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. Paul referred to Satan as the God of this world, and Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this world several times. 
Satan was able to offer Jesus the kingdoms of this world. That's because they are currently under his control. The regional princes who are over the Gentile nations of this world consider him to be their king. We know from Revelation chapter 12 that a third of the angels of heaven follow him. That possibly represents hundreds of thousands of fallen angels, if not millions, based on visions the apostles and prophets have had of heaven. Satan may be able to manipulate matter, but he doesn't have the ability to create it out of nothing like God did. After all, humans can even manipulate matter. Well, Satan has tricks up his sleeve where he can just do it quicker. He's not had to wait around for humans to discover how to manipulate molecules in the physical realm. He was there when God created the world out of a chaotic mass of elements. So, in essence, Satan can do tricks, and he can cause illnesses. Satan is not all-knowing and is not everywhere at once. There's nothing biblical to suggest that he is. Although, I imagine he can get around pretty quickly. But that being said, he has a vast network of those who are watching and listening to us and can pass those things on to him. You know, there's millions of them out there. There's nothing to indicate in the Bible that Satan can read our minds. However, he is a great reader of people. I mean, he would have PhDs, multiple PhDs in anthropology and sociology and psychology, right? Well, consider the mind-reading trickery that's used by charlatans who say they can read minds. They're extremely skilled at picking up on verbal and nonverbal cues and extrapolating from them what it is that people are likely thinking. Couple that with the fact that Satan or his minions can see what people are doing in secret and that they have thousands of years of understanding human psychology, and it may seem like Satan can read one's mind. He knows exactly how to tempt and distract us, how to cause doubt in us, how to manipulate us. Seeking first the kingdom of God, focusing on the things of Jesus every day, not just up until we're saved and then move on. That is our defense against this. Since we've discussed the sons of God so much already, I don't want to take up too much more time on them. In summary, according to Genesis chapter 6, some who were called sons of God left their proper dwelling place in the heavens and came down and had sexual relations with the daughters of men here on earth. As stated in Deuteronomy chapter 32, some of the sons of God, probably 70 of them, were placed in charge of the nations around the time of the Tower of Babel incident we read of in Genesis chapter 11. They're seen in the assembly or council which God presides over in Psalms 82. The sons of God may also be referred to as elders. A group of such elders and some of the individuals who make up that group are seen in several places in the book of Revelation. The term sons of God as it relates to divine beings, is absent in the New Testament. The more generic term of angel is used by New Testament authors. Both Second Peter and the book of Jude refer to what the book of Genesis called the sons of God, who were the fathers of the Nephilim, as angels. It's not that these beings cease to exist. It's that as Judaism evolved, there were growing concerns among the Jews, starting during the intertestamental period, over the idea 
of polytheism as opposed to their defining doctrine of monotheism. So the term son of God was avoided. This is partially why Jesus' claim to being a son of God was so offensive to them. The term son of God may denote a particular rank or status in the heavenlies, or it may have a more generic meaning in that it's a being who was created through the direct effort of Yahweh. He directly created the angels. He directly created Adam, who was known as a son of God. He directly intervened with impregnating Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, the Son of God. And he directly creates new spirits in the elect, qualifying them also for the term Son or Child of God. Moving on to the seraphim. Both Isaiah and the Apostle John saw seraphim, which is the plural of seraph. They were around the throne of God. You can read about them in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 to 7, and Revelation chapter 4. The word seraph literally means burning ones. That same word is also associated with serpents. In Isaiah's vision of the heavens, that's where they were first called seraph, the seraphim are described as having six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. When John describes them in the book of Revelation, they aren't called seraphim, but they are described as four living beings. Their description of being around the throne of God and having six wings matches that of Isaiah's seraphim. John additionally tells us that they were full of eyes in front and back. One was like a lion, one an ox, a third had the face of a man, and the fourth look like an eagle in flight. In all the passages of Scripture, the seraphim were seen constantly praising God. They could speak. One took a coal from the altar with tongs and touched it to Isaiah's mouth and told him his sins had been atoned for. Based on the use of the word seraph in Isaiah, it may be that some of the seraphim are counted among the fallen angels. There's two passages in Isaiah that associate them with evil. Both passages speak of them as flying fiery serpents. Yuck. Ezekiel describes what he calls cherubim, which he saw on more than one occasion, using some imagery that's held in common with the seraphim, but there are several differences. Biblical cherubs don't appear to be anything like the cherubs depicted in artwork. The cherubs each had a human likeness, but they each had four different faces. Each one of them, four faces. So there's four, that's like 16 faces. But their faces were similar to one another. Sorry about the prophetic math there. One face was like that of a lion, one an ox, one a man, and one of an eagle. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like calves' hooves. These creatures only had four wings instead of six, like the seraphim have. Their wings, when in use, were noisy. Two wings were spread above them, and two covered their bodies. When they would stand still, their wings were let down. Their countenance was like burning coals of fire. Lightning came out of this fire. The creatures darted back and forth like lightning. 
They each had gleaming, gem-like wheels beside them, which did not turn even as they moved. The rims were tall and covered in eyes all around them. Wherever the cherubim went, the wheels also went with them. It said that the spirits of the cherubim was in the wheels. It wasn't just a single angel, but the cherubim, plural, and a flaming sword that were left guarding the gate of Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled. Remember, Satan was said to have been created a cherub. If that's so, it's his co-workers that were posted at the entrance to the garden. Moses was commanded to construct likenesses of cherubim in the tabernacle. They were instituted into the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, and later two more cherubim stood towering over the Ark. Many other images of cherubim were built into the temple. It's noteworthy that these likenesses of cherubim were constructed prior to Ezekiel having his vision of the cherubim. The cherubim are another example of how physical structures on this earth are a copy or a foreshadow of things in the heavenly realm. This was God's way of communicating with humans through more than only using words. I need to mention now the other throne room servants. Although they don't have a biblical title, in Daniel's vision we see a thousand thousands or one million beings besides the cherubim and seraphim. They were said to be ministering to or serving God before his throne. Likely among them are you know, his divine counsel and certainly those angels which carry messages to the earth and do things like roll stones away and free apostles from prison. Michael is said to be one of the chief princes or archangels. Chiefs are considered first among others in importance or rank. This, of course, implies that there are other princes. Michael is said to be the prince of the people that Daniel was a part of, the Israelites. He appears to be a warrior. We're informed that Michael helped Gabriel, the angel that visited Daniel, to contend with opposing angelic beings. We read in Daniel 12 verse 1 that Michael will play a part in saving Israel at the end of this age. According to Revelation chapter 12 verse 7, he'll be instrumental in casting Satan out of the heavens for the last time during the events that accompany the end of this age. Interestingly, Jude informs us that Michael has previously engaged in a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. Messenger Angels Most know the Greek word angelos is literally translated as messenger. However, the title angelos has come to be a generic term for all types of heavenly beings that do far more than only deliver messages. The angel Gabriel is an example of an actual messenger angel who's named in both the Old and New Testament. He's the angel who delivered the messages to Daniel regarding the future of Israel, and he's the angel who delivered the messages to Zechariah regarding his wife giving birth, and to Mary regarding the birth of Jesus. Gabriel informs Zechariah that he stands in the presence of God. The Old Testament, Lot was warned by a messenger angel to leave Sodom. In a dream, Jacob saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder. 
God used a messenger angel to communicate with Elijah. In Acts 5.19, we read of a messenger angel breaking Peter out of prison and giving him instructions on what to do next. An angel appeared to Jesus' father Joseph in a dream on at least two different occasions. Messenger angels were utilized at the tomb of Jesus and at his ascension into the heavens to notify people of what was going on. Sometimes they appeared dazzling and other times more normal described simply as being dressed in white. God sent a messenger angel to communicate with a Gentile man of Caesarea named Cornelius, and an angel gave Philip instructions on what to do next and directions on how to get to Gaza. Besides delivering messages, angels are said to be ministering spirits. This is where the idea of guardian angels come from. Most humans will likely never be aware of the presence of such beings, but Scripture indicates that those who fear the Lord are indeed divinely protected. Psalms 34.7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. And Psalms 91.11 says, For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Obviously, We still have appointed times to die and get sick, get into terrible accidents, and experience all sorts of painful calamities that are a part of God's plan for us. But if we can trust what the Bible says, and I do, (laughs) God keeps us from the things that are not appointed for us by using His angels. All of this goes on behind the scenes without our knowledge. But It's a part of reality, right alongside all the things that we are aware of. Guarding, fighting, defending, and contending with the forces of evil is another role of angelic beings. When Elisha was surrounded by his enemies, he prayed that his servant could see into the spiritual realm. God allowed that to happen, and when it did, his servant could see The surrounding hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You can read about that in 2 Kings 6, verses 16 to 17. I can imagine what's going on around us. Actually, I can't, but it's just got to be awesome. Isaiah records an incident in which a single angel of Yahweh was dispatched, and he single-handedly killed 185,000 Assyrians who were set to attack Israel. Just imagine what a hundred million angels could do. When Jesus was being taken captive, he informed his disciples that he could have asked his father, and twelve legions of angels would have been dispatched. That's about seventy-five to 80,000 angels. That's a lot of angels. Let's talk about the angel of death. Well, death is something that happens. It's not a supernatural being although some supernatural beings may be more closely associated with death than others. Muslims believe that one of their four chief angels, named Azrael, is the angel responsible for death. During the Black Death of the Middle Ages, the Grim Reaper personified the angel of death, and it ingrained him into Western culture. Even though there likely is no one angel in charge of death, God does use angels to bring about death. 
The Passover remembers the time when the Lord passed through Egypt, using someone or something that's translated into English as the destroyer to cause the death of all the firstborn unless the house that they were in had the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost. During the end of the age, angelic beings are seen at least indirectly causing the deaths of a significant portion of the human population. In the parable Jesus told about Lazarus and the poor man in Luke chapter 16, we read of the poor man being carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Jesus also tells us that when he returns one day, he'll be accompanied by angels who will be assigned to gather the elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. Apparently, the elect will not be soaring into the sky to meet Jesus under their own power. I'm not sure how many each angel will be able to gather, but that statement represents a large number of angels. Now, about principalities, powers, thrones, rulers, and kings. These are all types of rulers in heavenly places that have a relationship with what happens here on earth in ways that can affect the physical world that we live in. Some of these terms may be general and others specific. For example, a ruler or an authority may be general terms that include principalities, thrones, and kings. Well, after looking closely at these titles, there does seem to be some overlap and redundancy. However, it's likely that the various beings Paul has listed possess different ranks, capabilities, and have different responsibilities. For example, in Colossians 1.16, Paul differentiates between thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, as though all of those titles represent different offices. Paul makes it clear that these offices exist in both the visible and the invisible realms, spirit and physical realms. In other words, there are, you know, physical world principalities and powers and authorities, but there also are the same things in the spirit realm. I'm not sure we're given enough information in Scripture to know all the details of how differences in rank and responsibilities work in the heavenlies relating to these various titles. But I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think we can know. Rulers or authorities is a broad or generic term. It may include the sons of God who are given authority in the heavenly realm over geographic areas on the earth. Those sons of God who are given such authority are also more specifically referred to as princes and kings, the, the principalities word. Princes and kings obviously indicate ranks, while both are still considered rulers and authorities. A throne could be those sitting on thrones and they're often associated with being judges or those who sat at the highest levels of government, such as kings. The Greek word thronos indicates a seat of power, or by implication, some kind of potentate. Now, taking today's deep dive into the weeds, <laughs> let's talk about what Peter and Paul referred to as powers. When speaking about the authority of Jesus in heaven in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter separates out powers from both angels and authorities. 
I'm going to suggest here a better way to translate the word used, which is dunamis, would be a miracle worker. The same is true where Paul uses dunamis in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. In other places where the word translated into English as powers, the original word is ekousia. It's used in a way that we use the phrase, the powers that be as in speaking about individuals that hold enforcement-type power over us. In that sense, it would be another generic, broad term. In a more specific sense, if it's referring to an individual angelic office, a better way to translate the word might be enforcer. The word dunamis is used in the New Testament 116 times and is translated as something pertaining to mighty works, such as miracles or the power of God, 111 of those times. Like the Son of Man will come with power. He'll come with dunamis and great glory. You can find that example in Matthew 24, verse 30. The word Paul uses for powers in Ephesians chapter 3 and 6, which is ekousia, is usually translated as authority or power, as in some sort of force. Akousia is found 103 times in the New Testament. It only refers to the office or position of a person about six of those times. And most of those times is when Paul uses the word in Romans chapter 13 to refer to the authorities, meaning the officials who have the right to enforce laws. Both words dunamis and akousia leave open the possibility that powers may actually be a fantastic ability that angelic beings possess, rather than referring to the being itself, its title. In other words, powers may represent miraculous signs, wonders, and miracles the angels have the ability to perform, rather than a title for a particular type of angelic personnel. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul even writes of Jesus being revealed from heaven with his mighty, his dunamis, angels. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, dunamis is associated with Satan, with all power, dunamis, and signs and lying wonders. If dunamis is meant to represent a title of an angelic being, a more appropriate translation may be like dunamis has been translated in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. There, Paul says, Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Dunamis? In this way, calling an angelic being a power would be to call them a worker of miracles. When the word ekousia is used, it would be less confusing to translate it as authorities, as in, the authorities are here to serve a search warrant. Based on the way Paul used this word in Romans 13, the term enforcer would also be appropriate. Okay, so let's climb back out of the weeds now <laughs> and talk about the term heavenly host. All the beings I've just referred to fit into the generic term, the heavenly host. Although sometimes in the Old Testament, the heavenly host may be referring to the physical stars in the sky, the angels of heaven are also referred to numerous times in this way as the heavenly host. Essentially, what most would think of as all the angels in heaven 
could also be referred to as the heavenly host. Now, demons. Many think of demons as a generic term for all the fallen angels who follow Satan. However, demons appear to be a lower rank than that of principalities and authorities, also known as the sons of God, that have authority over geographic regions. Well, those guys follow Satan too. People have worshipped and sacrificed to demons, but they're typically associated with being menacing spirits. They harass, oppress, and possess people. Oppression denotes an outside active influence on someone, whereas possession indicates total control of a person. Interestingly, demons, as evil as they are, are used as an example in the book of James as beings that believe in God and fear Him. Uh, I know it's not the Bible, but the book of Enoch states that the origin of demons were the spirits of the Nephilim who perished in the flood. They now try to control people and take over their bodies so they can live again through them. Some Hebrew sages bought into this theory as this idea is reflected in their writings. Again, there is no biblical evidence that this is true. There are several supernatural beings that are referred to in Scripture that have specific purposes. For example, when the four angels who are being held at the river Euphrates until the end of the age are released, they will be responsible for killing a third of mankind. Revelation chapter 9 verses 13 to 19 talks about these beings. It's interesting how these are live spiritual beings who are being held, assumably right now, in a physical geographic location of the earth. Based on this and many other places in the Bible, we have to assume that spiritual beings have some sort of respect for or relationship with physical locations and matter. In other words, I'm not too sure they can just fly right through matter like it wasn't even there. Then you have the four spirits of heaven. They're chariot operators that we read about in the book of Zechariah, who are said to go throughout all the earth doing the will of God. It's interesting that in Zechariah, some of these beings have assigned regions. These may be the same four horsemen seen in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, who all have horses of similar colors to those in Zechariah and ride out to execute the will of God throughout the earth. Then there is the one known as Abaddon or Apollyon. Abaddon is a Hebrew word meaning destruction. In the Old Testament, it's used as a word describing a being that's associated with death and the grave. In the New Testament, it's the name given to a supernatural being who's called the king of a swarm of demonic flying scorpions. He's said to be the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Greek is Apollyon, meaning destroyer. This being Apollyon is interesting. Some think Apollyon is Satan. However, since what takes place that Apollyon is responsible for occurs during what's called the Day of the Lord, which is associated with the end of the age. You know, it's when God pours out His wrath. It's during the Day of the Lord, as a part of God judging the earth. We don't know if Apollyon is even an evil fallen angel, or if he's an angel who's executing God's judgment in the same way that the four horsemen do as they ride out from heaven. Rather than being Satan, he could just be another angel doing his job.
Then there are the three prophetic angels that proclaim things that we see in the book of Revelation. The eternal gospel angel mentioned in Revelation chapter 14 flies out, proclaiming to all those who dwell on the earth, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That angel is followed by two other angels, one proclaiming that Babylon the Great has fallen, and another warning that anyone who worships the beast or takes his mark will be subject to the wrath of God. The overall mission of these angels is to remove any excuse or lack of knowledge that people may have about who God is, what He's doing, and the penalties for rebelling against Him. If there is any question that the so-called Great Commission has not already been fulfilled, or at least won't be one day, these angels take care of any stragglers who are on the earth at the end of the age. I'm sure there's a lot more to say about the spiritual beings who God created which go about their business around us every day. And I'm sure there's lots of questions. Don't be shy. Write me and ask them. Well, in a future podcast, Lord willing, I'll be talking some more about how, according to the Bible, these beings have been known to interact with the physical realm. There's no reason to believe they're still not doing so today. But that's it for now. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice or not, but I'm possibly coming down with something. Unfortunately, I don't have any episodes recorded ahead right now. So, there's always a possibility I may miss a week or two in putting up a new episode. If you don't want to miss the next episode, you may want to make sure that you subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform it is that you listen to it on, so you'll be notified of the next episode. Anyway, whenever that is, until then, I hope God keeps you healthy and blesses you richly. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.